You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority, do not let anyone despise you. Uh, thank you very much, Joe. Uh, well, we don't have to stretch too far these days to imagine what Proverbs 25:28 uh, is talking about. Uh, Proverbs 25:28 says, "Like a city whose walls are broken down." is a person who lacks self-control. Now, in those days, to live in a city without walls was utter folly. At any point, any band of robbers or neighboring country could march into your city and take control of it. Uh, just last year in uh, Afghanistan, we saw that happen. In just 10 days, the Taliban retook most of the country. And Solomon says, well, that's what it's like if you lack self-control, you leave yourself open to sudden and utter destruction. I've had a, a very small taste of that uh, in my life. Uh, you might have had a taste of that as well. You might have uh, got into a bit of trouble uh, from a tongue that lacked self-control, from a stomach that lacked self-control when it came to, to wine or drink from a mind that lacked self-control when it came down to, to the time for work, or even perhaps eyes uh, that lacked self-control when it came to pornography. Uh, just last week, I was uh, speaking to a friend, and he broke down in tears as he spoke of how he was enslaved to an addiction to online pornography and was seeing it slowly consume the rest of his life. But self-control doesn't just matter for this life, does it? 
It also matters for the life to come. In Acts chapter 24, Paul is hauled up before Felix, the governor of Judea. And Felix, if anyone, was a man who lacked self-control. He was an adulterer who brutally put down any rebellion that came his way. And whilst Paul was in prison, he was waiting for a fat bribe to let him free. So that's in violence, in lust, and in greed, he lacked self-control. And so imagine his concern when, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about his faith in Jesus Christ. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, well, Felix was afraid. And he said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll call you again. See, central to Paul's proclamation of the gospel is self-control and the judgment to come. It's one of those moments which makes Felix and people like us go gulp. A lack of self-control isn't just a little human slip-up. It has consequences in the judgment to come. Now, all of that is really just to to make us sit up uh, and take a bit of notice. See, you're at the end of nine weeks in the fruit of the Spirit, and I'm sure over those last eight weeks you've squeezed uh, just about as much juice as you can from the fruit uh, of the Spirit. But hopefully uh, there will be a little bit more to come as we look at self-control this morning. Now, if I could ask you to turn back to Galatians uh, chapter 5, we'll spend the first part of our time Uh, together in there. It was on page 1172, although the Bibles might just flip open at it uh, at this stage uh, in the game. Uh, 1172, Galatians 5. Uh, And this morning we're going to ask two just very simple questions. Uh, Self-control. What is it? And secondly, how do we get it? Very simple. Firstly, what is self-control? Uh, Now, keeping it in the context of Galatians 5, uh, I'd want to define self-control as power to say no to the desires of the flesh. Power to say no to the desires of the flesh. I'm sure you've seen over the last few weeks the tug of war that's taking place in every Christian between the desires of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. Granted, it's a a, a lopsided battle, isn't it, with a wrestle. The spirit is a lot stronger uh, than the flesh, but that doesn't stop the flesh putting up a fight in verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envies, drunkenness, orgies and the like. Now I wonder if you've uh, ever read that list and thought, well, what's holding all this list together? Uh, It's quite a random group in many ways, but I think one thing that holds it all together is that these are all desires, aren't they? They're the desires of the flesh. If you were to boil this uh, list down, boil it down, uh, the sinful nature would be saying, I want, I I want more, and I want it now. It desires things, I want them. 
Uh, take a few examples from the list. It's fairly easy to see a way in which sexual immorality would say, I want. Likewise, with fits of rage, a child in a temper tantrum, if you listen to them, they're often saying, I want. I want it my way. I want that ice cream, and I want it now. Drunkenness, likewise, is always just saying, I just want one more, then I'll be happy. Even some of the less obvious ones, witchcraft, at its heart, witchcraft is used to influence people and events by supernatural means. It's a way of getting what I want. Even idolatry, Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Well, if there's one thing that says, I want, it's greed, isn't it? I want these things. I want this stuff to make me feel valuable, safe, comfortable. In doing that, they take the place of God. Greed is idolatry. Idolatry is just another way of saying, I want. But another thing that unites the desires of the flesh is that they're all pleasurable, aren't they? If it's a desire, then it's desirable. Uh, Now, uh, I need to be a little bit careful here. I'm not commending this uh, list uh, to you as a fun thing to do. Uh, But if sexual immorality wasn't pleasurable, uh, then people wouldn't do it, would they? Uh, We don't often admit that to ourselves, that the person who's caught in adultery will give every excuse under the sun and will go out of their way to try and persuade their spouse that they didn't really enjoy it. But part of sin is that it's fun. It's what we want to do. Hebrews 11.25 admits that. It mentions that the fleeting pleasures of sin. And when we sin, what, what happens is we say, well, well, that was good. That was pleasurable. I, th- I think I might do that one again. Sure, we might spot a few downsides, uh, but they're easily forgotten in the heat of the moment. And now Ed Welch, uh, a Christian counsellor, helpfully points out what's going on when we sin. Uh, Sin gives us a fleeting pleasure, a pleasure that passes. And so we we have to go back there for some more. Uh, That was good, but it wasn't enough. So I'm going to go back there. And if I go back there just one more time, then, then I'll be satisfied. But it's a fleeting pleasure. So one more is never really gets us there. It will never fulfill. It's like uh, chasing the end of a rainbow. The more we closer we get to it, the further it gets away. It can act almost like an addiction. And it, as it fails to satisfy, it actually grows our at- appetite for that sin. Uh, the more you smoke, the more you want to smoke. And so uh, the more the habit grows. I was speaking to an older Christian uh, few months ago who was speaking about stress in his workplace and one of the ways which he dealt with stress uh, was by just having a biscuit uh, to make himself feel better and it did Uh, for a minute it made him feel better but the stress was still there and so he'd have another and another and another and so uh, eventually packets would disappear and the shame of that 
grew and grew. And the way he dealt with that shame was, you guessed it, by having another biscuit. Remember Colossians 3.5. Greed is idolatry. Food had become his saviour from stress. His actions had a God-defying element to them. And whilst he indulged in food, while others in his workplace, uh, while they indulged in uh, lunchtime drinks, others indulged in Netflix, uh, just one more episode and, and I'll be satisfied, just one more YouTube video and I'll be fine. Uh, others were endlessly scrolling through social media, just one more minute and then I'll be, uh, then I'll be full. Uh, others indulged in fits of rage at home. Well, I can't get what I want in the workplace, but I'll certainly get it uh, at home. And so an angry word became a, an angry conversation, became a, an angry relationship. Now, believe me, I'm, I'm not against biscuits. I, I love a good biscuit. Uh, hospitality team, yeah, you don't need to worry. I'll be right there at the end. Uh, but I'm, I'm trying to pitch this really quite, uh, quite strongly this morning. So we'll see just what a blessing it is to have self-control. If sin is like a slippery slope that's very hard to come back from, then how blessed is the hand that will hold us back from that edge? Self-control is the power to say no to the desires of the flesh. And that's where the word uh, comes from. Uh, if you're interested uh, in words, uh, the word is enkrateia. It comes from the word Power to have en critea is to be in power over yourself. To be without it is to be powerless, uh, like a city with walls that are broken down, powerless uh, to defend uh, yourself. Uh, but there's something slightly confusing about calling it self control. Uh, because self control for the Christian isn't power to do what we please. Self-control for the Christian is being free to do uh, what God pleases. Now, there's a famous uh, experiment, uh, the marshmallow experiment, uh, which you might have seen. Uh, you might have experimented uh, on, on your children. Essentially, the idea is uh, that you get your child and you sit them down at the table and you give them one of these massive marshmallows and you tell them, sit here and look at this marshmallow. Don't eat it until mummy or daddy comes back and now the joy of the videos is watching the children just get closer and closer and, and closer to the marshmallows sniffing them almost just about to take a little nibble about them but trying to have that self-control that holds back from them self-control isn't always just the power to do what we want is it sometimes it's the power to do what others want to do what our parents ask of us or in our case we need self-control to produce the fruit of the spirit to produce love joy peace patience kindness gentleness faithfulness goodness which i'm sure as you've been going along over the past few weeks you've seen is that picture portrait of our savior jesus if this were a job description, well, Jesus would line up with it perfectly. What does, it, what does love look like? Well, it looks like Jesus. What does patience look like? It looks like Jesus. And the same is true of self-control. All through his life, Jesus exercised self-control. 
not to do his will, but to do the will of his Father. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Just imagine the extreme temptation of his final days. The night before, he knew he was going to be brutally executed. What did he do? Did he seek comfort in the arms of a woman? Did he seek comfort in the bottom of a bottle? Did he resort to witchcraft to try and get him off out of jail? When spat upon, did he strike back in a fit of rage? When falsely accused, did he give in to selfish ambition and, uh, and defend himself? We know the answer is no, he didn't. It all comes to a head, doesn't it, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14. Uh, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. If it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Now that is self-control. The same self-control that he'd exercised all through his life. The same self-control that was obedient to Mary and Joseph. The ruler of heaven submitted to Mary, his mum, when uh, she told him to go to bed. Uh, the creator of the universe didn't turn rocks into bread when he was starving hungry. The general of heaven's armies didn't call down 12 legions of angels to defend himself. It took self-control to reach out and touch the leper and take up their infirmity. It took self-control for the Holy One of God not to walk away from sinners and their filth. It took self-control for the one who is worthy of all honor to put up with the mockery of the Pharisees. He saves others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. What self-control to hang there in utter agony, fighting for breath, to not rise to their taunts so that they could be saved. Isn't that worthy of all admiration? Don't you admire Jesus for that? Isn't that worthy of all emulation? Don't you want to be like Jesus in that? Self-control is a precious gift. Wouldn't you give anything to have it? The joy is that you can, and you can have it for free. Our second question is how do we get self-control? How do we become more self-controlled? Now, our culture is slowly waking up to the idea that this might be a good thing. For a long time, we've acted as if freedom is the ultimate good, free to make just as much profit as we want. But we're slowly realizing that freedom isn't always uh, the best idea. Freedom to exploit the planet, for example, has caused great damage. And so we're beginning to see a swing back almost towards restraint and rules and regulations that will keep things in check. A rule that says, no, just be self-controlled. Do you know that some people uh, react to the excesses and the clutter of materialism by living with extreme minimalism? 
living life with no furniture, no bank account, and only 30 items to their name. Living with only what you can fit in a suitcase. That's not a new idea. Uh, Stoic philosophy or uh, living without was alive and well when, when Paul was writing these letters. And that's the way the world will tell you to deal with the desires of the flesh. It's, it's just to stop having them. Uh, there's a, a Broadway musical out at the moment which captures uh, it, it nicely. I'm not going to sing the number one number for you, but I'll uh, read out a few uh, words. There's a song which says, When you start to get confused because you have thoughts in your head, don't feel those feelings. Hold them in instead. Turn it off like a light switch. It's a neat little trick. We do it all the time. When you're feeling certain feelings that just don't feel right, treat those pesky feelings like a reading light and turn them off. Paul warns the church in Colossae against that kind of idea. Why, as though you belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Self-control is not a matter of rules. It's not a matter of just switching it off. It would be a tragedy if you left this series thinking that. And we're not talking about people who are just naturally self-controlled either. Uh, Paul Baxendale, uh, the senior minister at Par Street, uh, won't mind me uh, sharing this, uh, but one interesting thing about him is he, he never eats uh, between meals. Uh, no biscuits, no sweets, uh, no, no cake. And you, you'd look at him and uh, you'd think, well, wow, there is a man uh, with self-control. He's not. Uh, he just doesn't, doesn't have a sweet tooth, and so he's not tempted in that way. Uh, see, there's a difference, isn't there, between personality uh, or the fear of man or whatever it is that's keeping him from the cookies and self-control which is produced by the Holy Spirit. That self-control is a gift, like every aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. He is the one who grows it in our life. He will change us over time to be more self-controlled. I do hope that you can see that as you look back on for however long you've been a Christian, you can see ways in which the Spirit has really been a help in holding you back from the desires of the flesh. Speaking to a friend uh, just last Sunday, they were asking me, what would you say to someone who was wanting more spiritual experience in their church? From... Galatians 5, you'd say, well, uh, look at Pablo over there, how he no longer shouts at his wife. Look at Paula, who isn't gossiping because she's given up on selfish ambition. Uh, look at how those from different political parties come together and sing God's praises on a Sunday morning because they've given up on dissension. Now, that is a church that is full of the Spirit. Of course, the fruit takes time to grow, doesn't it? It'll still be a battle. 
But hopefully you can see that fruit ripening on the vine, waiting for a harvest to come. But we know as well uh, that this fruit doesn't just mean sitting back and letting the Holy Spirit uh, do all the work. Uh, Paul uses the same word for self-control in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Think of those in the Commonwealth Games a few uh, weeks back, how every part of an athlete's life is self-control. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The Holy Spirit gives the power for the change, and we put that into practice. Now, I've been toying with different uh, pictures or uh, illustrations to help us understand that this last week, and I only came up with a really shaky one. So forgive me if this is wrong. My knowledge uh, of electric bikes is uh, uh, tenuous, Uh, at at best. Please please ignore this. Uh, But to my understanding, uh, an electric bike, there is a motor, isn't there, which powers you forward. But it only powers you forward as the the cyclist pedals, as they engage the cogs. Uh, Perhaps a, a better illustration, a more biblical illustration would be God giving his people the promised land. They have the promised land as a gift, but not if they just stand on the banks of the River Jordan. They have to go in and take hold of it, as it is with self-control. It's a gift that has to be taken hold of, like an athlete training. It's going to take some hard work. It's going to take some instruction. We saw that earlier in Titus 2, as we we had it read. Uh, If you would uh, just turn back to Titus uh, chapter 2, page 1199 in your uh, church Bibles, 1199. Titus chapter 2 verse 2 says, I'll teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled. Verse 3, likewise teach older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers, self-controlled, or addicted to much wine, self-controlled. Verse 4, then they can train the younger women to be self-controlled and pure. Verse 6, similarly encourage the younger men to be self-controlled. Verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, not to talk back to them, self-control, and not to steal from them, self-control. Verse 11, 4, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Well, that is a mile away, isn't it? Uh, From just trying to switch those feelings off or putting a few rules in place to stop us. How does the Spirit train us in self-control? He does it by grace. The grace of God teaches us to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age. And that's striking. It's not the justice 
or the wrath of God, which is teaching self-control. It's his grace. And his grace is shown to us in three ways. Firstly, in how he has treated us. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. At our best moments, we realize our need for that salvation. We need something that will keep us safe from God's anger. For my friend who was addicted to pornography, it was as he sat, just like Felix, fearing the judgment to come. How sweet it was to be able to tell him that God doesn't just intend to be gracious towards us on the last day. He's already been gracious towards us in Christ. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness. That, that offer is open now for us to accept, to be forgiven. We're not waiting for the final day to be forgiven. Secondly, God's grace is seen in the present, in God, how God treats us now. God doesn't just give us grace one, once, he gives it again and again. John 1.16, for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Uh, for grace to be truly gracious, it has to keep on giving, doesn't it, beyond anything that we've expected or deserved. It is a lavish, continuous deluge of grace. Uh, how sweet it was to be able to tell my friend that there is more grace even when he has to confess his sins again and again and again. There is grace. We have received grace upon grace upon grace. God never gives up. He will finish that good work that he's begun in us. And what's more is grace is shown in what he will do as well. Verse and in verse 13, this is all while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. You do know, don't you, that there is a deadline to sin. Our destiny is not to keep on struggling with it forever. There will come a day when Jesus will return and that battle will be over. We will be like Jesus, perfect in every way, just as he is. And if you can see even just a part of how good that is, then you'll be a long way towards self-control. Sitting underneath such grace just melts our hostility towards God. It pulls the carpet out from underneath the desires of the flesh. Uh, why would you seek love and acceptance in sexual immorality when you have love and acceptance in Christ? Why would you seek help from idols when you can seek it from the true and living God? Why do you need selfish ambition when we're going to reign with Christ. The grace of God teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There was a famous uh, lecture uh, given by a, a 
Scottish uh, theologian in the 19th uh, century, uh, Thomas Chalmers, uh, called uh, The Expulsive Power of the New Affection. Uh, it's a, a grand old title, uh, but what he was uh, essentially trying to say is that the way to get rid of an old desire, the best way to get rid of an old desire is to replace it with a new and better desire. And that's what we're trying to do this morning, to see that grace is just infinitely better than the desires of the flesh. He says in it, uh, that never does the sinner find within himself so mighty a moral transformation as when under the belief that he is saved by grace, he feels constrained thereby to offer his heart a devoted thing and to deny ungodliness. The way to be self-controlled is not to make more rules for ourselves, but to really revel in that doctrine of grace, to delight yourself in what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus will do. Uh, to re return to our uh, big bag of marshmallows, uh, we know the way to help those children resist the temptation of the marshmallow is to, to give them something far better, to give them the biggest slice of chocolate cake they've ever seen. And if they have that, then they'll very easily resist the marshmallow. If I, if I can put it this way, if our bellies are so full of the chocolate cake of grace, then we'll have no problem saying no to the marshmallow of sin. So how do we do that? How do we fill our bellies with grace? I think it's as simple as asking a question. When you read a bit of the Bible, just ask the question, how has God been gracious to his people here? How has God been gracious to me here? Why not try that this week as you do your quiet times, as you find chance to, to read the Bible? Ask the question, how has God been gracious to, be, to me here? And I'm willing to bet that on every page in your Bible, you will find God's grace. And if you do that, well, what a church you will be. A church where grace infuses every action and interaction. A church that has the sweet scent of the fruit of the Spirit wafting out of those front doors. See, imagine uh, what it's going to be like. I'm sure students will, will arrive in Lancaster in a few weeks. Imagine what it's going to be like for them to walk into Moreland's church. They might walk in through those doors a little bit nervous, a little bit scared. What have I let myself in for here? Perhaps they'll walk through those doors exhausted. After Freshers' Week, where the desires of the flesh, where I want has been applauded and rewarded all week long, and it's all they've been able to do just to say no to that. What would it be like to walk into a church that is ripe with the fruit of the Spirit, full of love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Well, to receive that would be like walking into an oasis after a desert, walking into a, a garden paradise, wouldn't it? In fact, it would be the closest thing to heaven on earth a place where the wounds of sin can be bandaged, a place where lives can be renewed and turned around, a place where people would see Jesus as they see the fruit of the Spirit 
at work within us. Wouldn't that be quite something? Let's pray. Lord Jesus says in Luke 11, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so, Father, in that knowledge, we ask for your Spirit to be at work here at Moorlands. Please be at work at Park Street Church as well. Please be at work in my life and the life of everyone here. Lord, we confess the battles that we have with the desires of the flesh. In ourselves, we lack any self-control, the power to say no to them. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in ever-increasing measure. Lord, you know where the battle is particularly fierce for each and every one of us. Please grant us grace to see growth in each area of Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, as we put uh, the desires of the flesh to death. Please grant us the great blessing of living self-controlled, upright and godly lives as we await the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.